Welcome to the We Love Arabian Horses podcast, sponsored by Markel, the insurance with horse sense. Let's jump right in. Hello, everybody. This is Paul Costa with the We Love Arabian Horses podcast. And today we're thrilled to have Santi Fornialis from Argentina with us. Welcome, Santi. Hi, how are you? How is everybody? Well, we're good. We're very pleased to have you on board here with our podcast. And thank you so much for taking the time. We'd like to start out with the first question with each of our guests about how they first found the Arabian and how Arabian found itself into the your world and the passion of your life. Well, first of all, let me thank you and uh, everybody that's hearing right now, because I feel a bit humbled to be on this uh, podcast. So thank you for inviting me, and I hope it is interesting for everybody. Uh, with that, with that said, um, well, it's um, I started. My father bought the first Arabian when I was around twelve years old, more or less. Uh, in 1993, in December 1993, so that would make it 30 years right now um, from that first Arabian. Yep. And um, it was in an auction, the first auction made at Aras Mayet, the world-famous breeders and owners of Magnum Psyche and Senior Magnum and J.J. Afar and so many greats. And um, yeah. That's where it all started. And I, there I bought, well, my father bought a mare for me called Raika, which was, um, I think, my first love, you know. It was a very significant mare for me. How old And were you? Uh, it's something that I was around 12. Okay. Almost 13, almost 13. And, uh, you know, it's it's this kind of mares that I think that we we should all have you know that 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 mare that marked us that you know drove us into this crazy passion that we are all uh inside right now and um yeah it's it was kind of like my foundation in yeah. in uh, you know in 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 the horse thing you know well yeah and you you've had a whole life filled with that and that was a good start um, how old were you when you started breeding horses? Were you doing that with your father as you grew up those years, or did you start your own breeding yes. later? No. Well, it, I had like kind of like two stages, I would say. The first where my father was involved. Our first babies were born in uh, 1995, so that would be the first uh, breeding, yep. our first four babies. and um, And I was always you know, crazy about breeding. I, I love breeding more most than, than anything else. But then my father, he really loved endurance and I would just follow along with him. So I did a, quite a lot endurance when I was young. You know, that, and I think that that, that helped me be a better horseman. Right. You know, just understanding the horses from a very different perspective than, than what it is uh, as a judge, which you're just, passive you know when you're in an endurance riding you're active you're doing things right and uh i it, it it i think it it gives you a good sense of what a really good horse should be and i think that my background with that made me uh, a better judge that if i had only bred horses you know 
Well, I think the breeding aspect of, of anyone's background is so significant when they're judging, obviously, especially in the halter and the breeding classes. And that's something that you have significant experience. Have you tell us a little bit about your breeding program and what you've bred and some of the, the things you've learned along the way? Well, I would say that the second stage was around because I kind of missed that on the previous question. Uh, the second stage was when I started to be entirely on my own. Yeah. And that would have been around nine or 10 years ago. Uh, you know, my father is still alive and still had a couple of horses. Not anymore, but, you know, there was kind of like a slow transition, but I would say it was the last 10 years. Uh, horses that I bred, um, you know, I had bred some pretty good endurance horses that went on to competing in world championships. Yeah. Uh, there was one that was, um, he, he ran in the World Cup, the Kentucky World Cup for, for Chile. His name was Timbo. I also bred a mare that was a filly that was probably one of the best legacy of gold fillies bred in Argentina. Uh, that she was uh, Ashman Silver Champion Philly. Uh, she was uh, owned by Albi Dyerstad, and well, mm-hmm. unfortunately, she died. And a couple of Colombian national champions uh, back in the day. And honestly, I'm—I mean, I'm a very small breeder. I have uh, very hand-picked mares, and. Uh, and, you know, uh, it's not like I produce m- massive amounts. I have like three, four babies a year. And I, great, I don't though. like showing. Yeah, I don't like showing horses that I don't think that they can win. So if I don't have anything, I just don't show and that's it. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's fine with me. And, um, yeah, that would be like in, in my own personal breeding program. That's That would be it. Uh, and I'm already in my fifth generation in some of the mares. Wow. Do you have yeah. any particular breeding bloodlines that you follow, or do you um, match the mare to the stallion for each individual um, resulting baby? How do you choose that? Well, there's like breeding. I change my mind like a million times before the the mare gets actually pregnant. My wife is a repro vet and she kind of hates me about it because I change the stallions every five minutes. And I'm like, no, maybe I should do this or maybe I should change. Um, but I, I do have kind of like um, uh, a goal on where I want with each baby. And uh, for me, I, I don't think that breeding, let's say, this is a concept that I that I like to you know put into into the table. I don't think that a great breeder is the guy that produces one amazing baby and ten horrible, worthless babies. Right. You know, for for me, a great breeder is the guy that produces ten very good babies, even though maybe none of them is a superstar. Okay, breeding for me it's about consistency. That's what a, a great breeder is. And if you always get consistency, eventually you will hit the jackpot. And the good thing is that that day that you hit the jackpot, that baby will for sure breed on. 
whether it's a cult or a filly, it will breed on because it comes from many generations and many consistent horses all over his pedigree. Right. So for me, that's super important. Uh, another thing, I don't, uh, don't wrap myself around any particular bloodline. I think that quality crossed with quality usually produces quality. Yep. So you have to have a good horse and no matter the bloodline. And there's also another thing that I try to, to do. And, and this I'm going to get into a controversial part. And I know that and I, I sincerely don't care because I think that in the end, this is my perspective and it's for the good of the horses. Yep. I, I, I worked in Qatar with a farm that had a lot of um, inbreeding. And I could see the problems in these babies with inbreeding. Uh, I could see the problems. I could see the the um, subfertile horses. I could see the the maiden mares having cysts in the uterus, like like if they had already had like ten babies already. And I could see like I don't know juvenile epilepsy and all of that. So I think. And, and even if you see it in, in cattle, today I work in a cattle farm that belongs to my family, uh, my family-in-law. And we run this farm. And we always, you know, to get the best meat calves, you have to have um, hybrid vigor. I don't know the translation, if that's exactly correct. But, you know, when you mix a little bit of blood, your your horses are stronger. They're better horses. Right. As your cows are better because of the, I think it's in, in Spanish, at least it's by, um, bigot híbrido, which would be the, 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 the strength of having, uh, a lot of mixed blood. Gotcha. So, okay. So, so basically I try to open pedigrees as much as I can. I do like, because I'm not going to say I'm, I'm not that stupid. I don't think that, uh, it's, uh totally wrong to do inbreeding but for sure not massive inbreeding you know i like to mix a little bit let's say we all know that versace over versace works okay let's do that but you know just try to make sure that that you don't have it like very close in the pedigree so that you know it is there but it's not really really close with it doesn't bring the problems of of inbreeding well, I think that's really interesting, and I think that the inbreeding has been a little bit of an issue with some breeding programs, so it's interesting that you brought that up, um, and, and good that you're conscious of that. Well, I mean, in the end, I know I can get into trouble by saying this, but, you know, in the end, it's for the better of the horses, so I don't care. Right. <laughs> Basically, you know, um, I think that one of the problems that I see and and Probably one of the reasons why I really love this project of We Love Arabian Horses is that we're lacking of education in, in many, many aspects. Uh, and this is one of them. I remember having a conversation with a, like an A judge, A judge, super big judge. Uh, and, you know, I was checking on his farm. He invited me there and I was checking his horses and he was doing this massive, massive, in breeding of breeding brothers to brothers. And I was like, 
And he was like, what do you think? And I said, look, you're going to get into a really big trouble. If not, if it's not now, in one or two generations, you're going to have problems. And he said, why do you think that? And I said, look, maybe you are not taking care of yourself of horses, but I am taking care of horses myself. And I can see these problems. I can see the juvenile epilepsy and I started mentioning all the problems and his eyes were starting, you know, they were, <laughs> they were getting huge and he was looking at me like surprised. And I said, this is the problem with it. I mean, uh, of course, certain lines have this, uh, this problem are more consistent. I mean, inbreeding other lines do not have maybe these same problems. So maybe I got just a taste of the worst part of inbreeding. Right, but, right, right. You know, but but still, like, it's something that we should all consider uh, opening up. Well, I think so. And, you know, I think your background, starting out very young, and then your father and the breeding program and whatnot, that's really lended itself to your judging. You judge quite a bit now around the world. And talk to us a little bit about your judging and First of all, what inspired you to do that? And what, what do you like about it now? And what would you like to see changed? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, well, first of all, uh, I was kind of like a groupie of judges. No, like every judge that came to Argentina, I, I kind of asked the British Association if I could show them around. So I would take them for dinner. I would speak to them and I would just ask, ask, ask and uh, have, you know, very long, interesting conversations. And I, I, I remember many judges that, you know, they would go above and beyond to explain to me a technical aspects uh, of the horse and their perspective and breeding, etc. So for me, that was like, you know, for me, I have to think of it this way. I was a young kid halfway around the world, that most of these guys, he just saw them on magazines. I mean, I didn't travel that much. I was not a rich family, so, you know, it's not like I could afford traveling everywhere. Right. And uh, so they were kind of like idols for me. And I would just, you know, kind of kidnap them and, and, and kill them with a billion questions. And <laughs> for me, that was super interesting, and I loved it. And... um and that kind of like made me idolize judge, judges because of their knowledge. And I wanted to become one of them. So in 2003, there was a judge course training in Argentina uh, done by Jorge Concaro, who's been judging also in, in, in the United States and Brazil and, and is a super good judge. And uh, well, I was selected there had my first show in 2004 when I was 23 years old and I started judging, you know, I started judging a lot in kind of in South America first, but then I went to work to Middle East and, you know, people started taking notice of me and they, I got invitations and Irina Stigler called me to judge in Russia and then I went to Italy and, you know, then to Israel. And then I started, you know, growing up a little bit. Yep. And then came Dubai, which was for me like my very big first, like super big show. 
And uh, I don't know. Well, I guess I, I did kind of a decent job. And that's why I got a couple of more invitations. And yeah. Well, how um, long, when, when did you start judging and, and about how long has that been? Well, next year will be 20 years. Like, okay. From my first show, you know, um, most of them were kind of like in South America in the beginning. So probably most of you guys uh, didn't know me back then, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been a while actually. It's like, this is not my first rodeo, you know? Right. Um, but and I I loved it. I love it. I still love it. I enjoy just going around, seeing horses, talking to people, learning. You know, there was one lady here in Argentina, and I hope that he's. I hope she's hearing this podcast through her son that uh, that shows it to to her. Uh, this lady was called Brigida Loop, and she said to me one thing. You know, I was a uh, cocky arrogant uh, teenager that thought i knew it all and she was very calm and just one one day she looked at me and said santi the day that you think that you know it all with horses that day you're done yeah and that you know and that stuck into my mind and i try to still apply to to it you know i think that you know as judges, no matter how big the shows you you judge, and you you still need to stay humble, right? Because tra- trainers they know more about horses than you do. Uh, readers they know more about their own horses than you do, and uh, you know we have like one minute and a half, maybe three minutes, let's say, view on a horse. We know nothing about that horse. We have just a glimpse. So we need to stay humble enough when we give our opinions about these horses, you know, because we don't really know them. They do. We don't. So I think that, you know, uh, for me, a a humble judge, a humble judge is a a judge that will eventually get somewhere. Well, it's so true. And there's so much to learn. I, I've often said when I come back from a horse show, I always come back better than I got there because I learned from my fellow judges. And also while we're judging, um, you know, talk during the show and during all that, but you you do learn a lot from others just in their perspective on the breed and the breeding, the showing, et cetera. I think it's super important. Yes, absolutely. It, it's it, It's also the fun part of this. I mean, I, I hate arrogant judges. I met many, many of them. And in the end, you know, it's just a crust, you know, when you scratch a little bit inside, there's nothing, there's no real knowledge, but you know, whatever, it's up to them. Um, you know, I think that, that, that humble judges are the best ones, are the ones that you can stay for hours talking like at this show, this last show in Scottsdale last week. I had eternal conversations with Cindy Reich. She knows way too much. And it was super interesting to talk to her, to Marek Trela, Mike Wilson. For me, you know, for me, having this good old um, uh, back and forth conversations and different perspectives uh, are amazing. Claudia also. I mean, all the judges that I judge with yeah. at, at this lab show particularly. But, you know, just to mention the ones that came because I had like really deep conversations with them. 
But I think it's that perspective and, and really it's not picking apart any one horse at the horse show. It's really learning from each other and their backgrounds and the conversations you have when you're at dinner um, and other times that really give you a breadth of knowledge that's greater because of hearing from Claudia or Merrick or Mike or whomever, right? Or Cindy, right? That's, yeah. that's where we gain knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, look, uh, let's say an example. Uh, Cindy is special specialist in biomechanics. So we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, the whole difficult to explain in a podcast because it was very visual. And uh, then you had uh, Mike Wilson as a trainer and he was talking about the length of of the um, of the hook and the, the height of the hooks and all of that. You know, it was so interesting to, you know, put that all together and you always learn something. And um, I think that, you know, in the end, we're all kids on this. Yeah, We're all kids in kindergarten. You know, I was today, my wife sent me a, a picture of my son with four year and a, four years and a half. He wrote his name for the first time, you know, yep. and I think that, you know, somehow, somehow we're all writing our first name, our names for the first time, you know, uh, when judging. If if we don't stay humble, we're we're done. Well, in the judging, when you're judging, are there any things that are just particularly pet peeves for you about not just the judging, but the the, the halter division as a division globally? Have you noticed any trends or any things that are either really good news or bothersome to you? Well, you know. Back in the day, or maybe let's say 15, 15, 20 years ago, you know, there was the American type and, and the European type. Yep. And um, I think that today it, it, it's slightly disappearing and you have a universal type. Uh, and that's something that we should all applaud. You know, at, at this particular show in, in Scottsdale, I was seeing the, the younger classes. Uh, there was a quest to look for more type, maybe there was, you know, when, when you have a quest, you have a hit and miss, but you could see that there was a, a quest there. And I think that that's super because you have, you know, usually when you talk to American judges, our conversations are 100% technical. And uh, when you talk to European judges, and this I mean it in general terms, of course, there are ex exceptions in both cases, but sure. with European judges, there you know they talk more about beauty and the detail and the eye, like this and that, you know, and the small ears and the expression and all of that, which is not horseman perspective, you know. And uh, for me, it's interesting to have both sides and try to understand of, of both sides, um, just to make the best out of it. And. You know, as a trend, what I what I'm starting to see is this the thing that it's a bit universal. You go to European championships and you will find very good bodies, very good necks, and very good shoulders, which used to be the trademark of American horses back in the day. But this, but today, those horses they also have like those horses in Europe and, and Middle East have an, also amazing faces and amazing movements. So in the end, you have, you're starting to have kind of like a very 
perfect horse, you know. Of course, there's things to improve because, you know, as, as, as this lady said to me, Brigida, you know, the day that, that, that you think you know it all, the day that you think that you achieved all, that day you're done, well, there is things to improve. I can see a lot of uh, hand problems, leg problems, let's say, uh, which scares me. Because in the end, we never should forget that this was meant to be, uh, you know, war horses. Mm-hmm. These are horses that conquered the Iberic Peninsula, you know. Uh, so they conquered, these are the horses that conquered Spain and Portugal and, and a, a very good part of the south of Europe. Uh, so, you know, we should always remember this. Well, I think that's important. And there for a while, I thought some of our horses were beginning to get really um, frail and really narrow boned, especially in the legs. And I think that's changing a bit, but that would be an example of what you're talking about. They're not going to do good in terms of their stamina. Yeah. Well, look, I think, and I hope, I don't know if I think, let's say, I hope that trainers start to realize that, you know, if you want to, I mean, for me, this mixed point plus comparative system, it's pretty much the best one. Because if you don't have a horse with great shoes, with great legs, or if you have a horse with horrible legs, he will probably not make it to the championship. So people should start to take a really good look at their legs, because if not, they will not make it to the championship. And this is how the system is starting to fix a little bit these things. And one of the conversations that I was having with the, with these, uh, with, with the, the, the judges at the show is that we we're talking about one particular stallion uh, that, you know, has many, his sons and daughters have many leg issues. And I looked at them and said, guys, I have four daughters of that stallion back at home. And none of them have the problems that I've seen here in the show. Hmm. And you know what the difference? It's not in the pedigree. The difference is that the way I raise them, those mares, those fillies that I have at my house, they were raised in big pastures, free, just fooling around the whole day, outside, no boxes, no nothing, just grass, sun, and fun. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I don't have those same problems. So it's not only about the genetics, which are of course a very important part, but we should start to really take care of how we're raising these horses. I know that the training centers do not have enough space. I get that because you know they are usually in in very small areas, but somehow we need to figure out how to give more liberty to horses because in the end we will have better results. Mm-hmm. Well, doesn't so, that, doesn't the example you're talking about happen in all kinds of breeding programs? It happens with the dog world. It happens with other breeds of horses. So this is a common fault in, in, in any breeding of any type of animal, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not familiar with other breeds, 
but but it's you know common sense i mean you don't need to be a a scientist to understand that right 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 well and i think sometimes with any of these breeding programs whether it's arabian horse or horse in general or dogs or anything else you tend to keep wanting to get to the extremes and the extremes at some point become too extreme and then that becomes a problem in itself well i'll give you a happy example okay about uh, about this and and how I was at a show doesn't matter because if I tell you which show it was you'll probably you know <laughs> people will figure out which filly I'm talking about but you know there was a filly that had this extreme 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 face and she got 19th in face the dish was crazy crazy dish and she got 19 and you know why because me and some other judges we just got close to the filly. We started listening how she breed, she bred uh, her breath, and said, "Out, she's not breathing right." And she got 19s and 19 and a half. And people were expecting, you know, like a 2020, 2020. No ah. way. Okay, no way. She got 19s and 19s and a half, and she didn't win. So I was, you know. There is hope in these kind of examples. No, that's a great example. And I think that's a good example for folks that show, you know, they're the owners, they have their horses out there and they, they don't necessarily quite understand all of the facets of each element. And it's good for them to hear uh, messages like this from fellow, from judges and folks that are the ones out there explaining what happens sometimes. I think that's a great example. I'll give you another example. At a show, I was li- I was seeing a, a a mare. She was trotting, and she was trotting quite well. But then, if you would listen up, yeah, and this is one thing judges should also start listening, not only seeing. It's not a you know, and I could hear her touch herself twice, you know, the hands and the and the feet and the back feet mm-hmm. touch herself. Back. On, on her canter out for me <laughs> that was a disaster I kind of kill her in, in points in movement sure. because of that and uh, we need to we need to start seeing those things and um, if if every if, if I mean as judges we have the responsibility on giving directions on where the bridge should go Okay, we have that responsibility. If there is an extreme phase that is so extreme that the, the, the poor baby cannot even breathe correctly, we cannot uh, prize that. We cannot, you know, let that go. We need to make a statement that that is an extreme. We're not willing to go that far. And I was so happy that many judges went on that same direction because it, you know, it gives us hope. We're not, you know, we're not going directly to the iceberg, you know, we can kind of uh, let it pass on on our way. Well, and you've got a a great breadth of experience. And I like the point you've made that I think as the world has become connected more a lot because of social media, it's like we're one big community and having a different horse that's shown in in Europe and and Middle East versus the USA versus say Australia 
that's really been a, an issue a bit. And it's really nice that it's becoming a little bit more similar, um, maybe not a hundred percent, but in many ways it is becoming a more common look that we're looking for the same type of horse um, globally now. Absolutely. Well, take a look at a stallion like Marash, let's say a stallion I admire deeply as a breeding stallion. And he was U.S. national champion and he was world champion and he has world champion offspring. And I think, I don't want to make mistakes, but I think even U.S. national champion uh, progeny too. So that's a complete horse. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's a horse that can, can go everywhere. No, that's good. I really appreciate that. Well, have you? Do you have any things about the the halter community or the breeding and showing community that are things that you just particularly don't like, or you'd like to share right now? That are things that would help people in terms of their showing or their ownership of horses. Um, you know, choose and select better horses or the way that they're being shown. Do your homework. Mm, that's a good one. I I don't see much breeders doing the really you know, like the in-depth homework. Like when I started, we didn't have internet. Okay. I was just going through the catalogs of the auctions and checking the pedigrees and all of that. Today we have it all like this. We can go back and forth, check the grandmother, the great grandmother, check exactly what she produced. Uh, like the whole family Back and forth, you can see the past. And if you can see the past, you can see the future. Okay, do your homework. Check your mares. Check whatever pedigrees. There are some Facebook groups that are amazing. I used to, you know, uh, be an active participant. And, you know, there was one where you could ask for photos of particular horses. And, you know, if anybody had photos of them, they would just, you know, send them to you. And therefore, you could see old-time uh, uh, horses that were in the, your pedigree, the pedigrees of your mares. And that was amazing. So we have so many tools to do a better job than we had in the past that it's nonsense not to do your homework. I mean, if you really have a passion for this, if you really do have an, a passion do your homework. Go and check your mares. Check the brothers, the sisters, what they produce, with whom they produce. Check the experience from other breeders. What did they do? What did the cro did, what crossings they made? I mean, we have everything in hand. It's stupid not to use it. Right. Well, and it's also what what crosses worked and what crosses didn't work, right? There's the the we did a podcast recently with Ted Carson and he talked a little bit about things that he had done in his breeding program that he wished he hadn't done that he'd learned from. Right. And I think those kind of uh, areas of advice are so helpful um, to people to learn like this. We're getting ready to put Cindy Reich on some podcasts here to do some of the educational stuff that you were talking about when you were talking mm -hmm. to her at world cup. And we're just thrilled to have people like this yourself and others who are willing to share education in such a global community. Well, look, I have, uh, I have uh, uh, kind of like, I, I try to mentor small breeders back here in Argentina as much as I can. I don't have commercial 
needs so I can do it very freely and openly. And, um, and you know, for me, that's what it should, it's supposed to be. I mean, I don't know. I think half world has my WhatsApp numbers. And if not, I can pass it to you or whomever wants to. And I, I, I'd be glad to answer questions because I think it is our duty. Look, we've all been taught by somebody. As I told you, I had a million judges explaining me a million things. I owe it to them to, to you know, answer every question that I can. And I also, I'm not the owner of the truth. It's my perspective. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. But it's my honest opinion. Yep. Well, you and I had talked about this a little bit, and I just think it's so important that you brought that up, and I appreciate it. Another topic that we talked about, which is you know affecting our industry, is the the conversation about the changing culture. You want to talk about that a little bit and the world that's changing? And you and I had a very interesting conversation there in Scottsdale. I wanted to see if you'd repeat yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that, and I will link this to my beginnings. I think that, like the generate my father's generation, my father will be 80 in a couple of years, um, next year, actually. And uh, his generation had pride, like uh, the, the horses were a symbol of status, okay? And it, it was a, a sign of pride to have, you know, a super good horse because it was also in my grandfather's generations. And all the previous generations. But now the world has changed. Like, let's say, a 40-year-old guy like me, but that has made a fortune out of bitcoins, bitcoins, let's say, or something like that. His, his way of, his symbol of status is no longer a horse. It's the, the Ferrari that he can drive and show on social media. Nobody shows on social media a horse as a symbol of pride, you know, in a very vain way. We do it just for ourselves, which are all, all kind of like freakies of the horse world. But we're not doing it for everybody else. You know, I don't know if, if it's clear. Maybe if not, let's stop and I explain this again. No, Maybe it's good. And I, 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 no, it's good. I just, I think there's a changing culture and, and we, the Arabian horse community, be it in the USA or anywhere else really needs from a marketing perspective to, you know, address this different world that we live in. And the children aren't growing up in, in necessarily farm homes anymore. They're closer to town. They don't have as easy access. A lot of them are on digital devices um, the, the shift of the culture has just been different. And, and in some cases, it's just easier to own a boat than it is to own a living, breathing animal, right? So you got to touch those people that are really inspired by, um, you know, being animal lovers and horse lovers. Absolutely. But let me, like, we can edit this, please. And, and I will explain it again, maybe in a better way, okay? okay? Because I want to do it in a more concise way. I think that the cultural changes that we're living and we're going through uh, are are a hazard for the horse in general, no matter the breed. Uh, and it has to do with social media. Let's say 
my father's generation and my grandfather's generation, having a horse was a symbol of pride. Having the best horse was a, a, a symbol of pride. Today, having the best Ferrari and showing it on social media, that's a symbol of pride. We have, you know, the digitalization of the world has driven us to to a very vain kind of life, uh, you know. And um, unfortunately, they, this is leaving the horse behind. So what is going on, let's say, in other breeds, like the quarter horse, at least here in South America, since they are working horses, not for pleasure, and this is like, you know, take a underline this part of pleasure. Since they're working horses, they're successful and they're bred because in the cattle ranches, you know, having working horses, that's a, a, a key uh, a, a key tool in your business. So therefore you would go for it for a quarter horse. But in a pleasure, but we're competing in a different level. We're in the pleasure world, in the fun world. And, you know, a Ferrari is much more fun and much more status of sim a symbol of status for the than a horse. Right. So, yep, that, that's that's the biggest problem that we're having. No, I think that's a good point. And, you know, We Love Raven Horses is really all about outreach and education and marketing, sharing the breed. And I think these points are so important for us to realize. It's not just that the breeding of horses is declining. The culture is changing, which means that we have to reverse that somehow in order to attract more people. Yes, but there's one thing. Because I, I, I will give you, and, and this is like part of the having this open conversation. When you're doing it through a social media platform, you're competing in the, in the area where you're most likely to lose. No, you're very, that's very true. In, but if we stay away from social media and we start making more parties, and having more fun at these parties with horses, like the horse is just the excuse to have fun, and we make it more social and less media, okay? That's the only way we can really make this happen. Because, you know, having this We Love American Horses, you're competing, you, you know, it's like you're in the middle of the war zone, you know? No, exactly. Um, and... So, but it's necessary. I'm not, you know, roasting We Love and Raven Horses. I think it's absolutely necessary. And I applaud that, that you guys are doing such a huge effort for this. Because you, we, you need to fight the, 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 the different battles in each battlefield. In social media, well, we're doing it. You're absolutely but, right. And what we're, our goal is to find them on social media, but then draw them into a touch experience in person, either a local farm or a local horse show or some event that they can be at where they can actually come touch and be a part of an Arabian horse, like you said, to the parties or to the events that they might learn about and to, to find them through social media. But, you know, the, the 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 virtual experience of a horse is not nearly the same as the in-person experience with a horse. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And I also, you know, and I'm, I'm going to trans you know, 
pass this to my beginnings. When I started endurance, we were all amateurs. Okay, here in Argentina, I started in 1994, I think it was the first race. We were all amateurs. But then university came and, uh, you know, school, and I was a teenager. I wanted to go party. And, you know, that doesn't live up with the horse experience. And um, it got to a point where there were certain people that would say would be almost professional. And I was by no means a professional endurance rider. I didn't want to, and I was not interested. And I could not compete with a guy. I mean, I hardly trained every Saturday. I could barely compete with a guy that trained every day. Right. And so if you translate this to the halter world, it has become so technical, so technical, that we have a barrier there where people say, well, this is just too complicated. And they just walk away from it. So the only way we can, we can, you know, help them out is, you know, by education, teaching them and, uh, you know, showing them that, that, you know, okay, in the beginning, this is a bit complex to understand, but in the end, it's also very interesting. I always say that breeding, it's like going to the casino, but with genetics. Yeah. You know, which makes it even more fun because you have the same random, but you can at least at, at least control a little bit what you're doing, you know? So so you have the same adrenaline uh, rush, let's say, uh, but, you know, a very <laughs> in a very different way. So sure. I think that it's super, it, it, it's the fun part. I mean, I cannot understand a guy that likes to gamble, like that goes hardcore into casinos, why he wouldn't get into this. <laughs> There's kind of some similarities, aren't there? Oh, yes, there is. But that's the fun <laughs> part of it. And, and you know, the, the fun part is, like in Argentina here, we, we have a small group of breeders. We are... Not that much. So we have a WhatsApp group, and uh, we we have so much fun just teasing each other about, oh, your baby's a donkey. Oh no, my my baby is gonna beat yours in the show. You'll see. You'll wait. And you know, it's part of of the fun, right? Uh, well, I think that the the getting our people, our new people, and existing people into relationships and having more fun is also um, a catalyst for growth in the industry. And I think that's a really important point. Um, and it, I've noticed that even with folks that are in the industry, if they're not really connected to the people that they have fun with and they're not seeing them and more often at parties and other little events, um, they get a little aloof, if you will. And it's the same thing for our newcomers. We really need to bring them in and, and it's a, a, an enjoyable community for them to participate. Yeah, absolutely. But we, the, the problem is that, you know, the definition of madness is doing every, you know, doing the things all over again and expecting different results. Yep. Okay. And uh, so I applaud every new attempt uh, and every, you know, creative idea. Uh, but 
in the end, you know, it's all about a social experience. Exactly. Well, Santi, I really appreciate your time and we could talk to you for two hours, um, but I'd love to have you back on another time. And I really appreciate your sharing your wealth of knowledge and education with us today. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, hope we can do this more often. Uh, I feel like I still have a, a billion things to say and uh, to breeders <laughs> or like ideas in breeding and all of that. So let's just you know, use this as a teaser for the next one. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate it. And again, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Okay. See you soon. And thank you for bearing with us until this, until this point of the podcast. <laughs> this is Austin, director of the We Love Arabian Horses podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure that you click subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Comments, questions, guest ideas, feel free to send me an email at austin at welovearabianhorses.com or just use the contact us button on our website at weloveArabianhorses.com. Thanks for listening.